0: You're listening to 3CR Breakfast Summer Programming. During the year, we heard from so many incredible voices. Tune in to hear our top picks from 2022. Join us on 3CR 855 AM, 3CR Digital, streaming at 3cr.org.au or via the Community Radio app.
1: I am not the problem.
2: You're listening to Thursday Breakfast Summer Programming on 3CR Community Radio. Today's show features a selection of interviews featuring the voices of trans and gender diverse folks. Stay tuned to 3CR 855 AM, 3CR Digital, or stream at 3cr.org.au or via the Community Radio app. Now joined by Isabel Morton, who is a community member who's been involved in analyzing government policy and legislative pushes in Australia that affect trans and gender diverse people. And Isabel's joining us today to speak about a range of issues surrounding the discussion of trans people in Australian politics and media, including the operation and impacts of framing of trans lives and identities as a legitimate arena for debate. Now, I'm going to chuck in a quick language warning just in case. So um, I think... There, it, it we might potentially touch on slurs that are used against trans and gender diverse people, so that's really um, something that I want to mention. There, um, we may not touch on it, but yeah, without further ado, Isabel, thanks so much for joining us.
3: Hello, uh, yes, it's my pleasure to be here. Yeah, um, I mean, thank, thanks go. so much for the invite. Here yeah,
2: yeah, of course. Um, I'm really, um as listeners can probably tell, I'm a bit more giggly than usual because I'm a bit nervous about this interview, but I'm also really, really excited to be able to talk to somebody who has spent some time thinking about this and also to have, like, um, you know, two trans people talking about this on air. Um, this is the kind of coverage that normally gets Um, Or, like, this is the kind of conversation that normally is presented, if it ever is, as a reply to, you know, whatever kind of transphobic rhetoric is in the media rather than a standalone thing. So I'm really glad that we're having this conversation.
3: Yeah, no, um, it's very – and it's nice not to have uh, my – or our experience, I should say, uh, filtered through uh, cis people advocating for us. Yeah. Uh, It's nice to be able to speak about it on air uh, as peers, I think, in the same community.
2: Yeah, 100 percent. So I thought we might start off with some of the most immediate concern uh, issues concerning transgender people and particularly trans women that is uh, being used as a political football in Australia in the lead up to the 2022 federal election. So this week we saw Prime Minister Scott Morrison backing Senator Claire Chandler's push to prevent trans women competing in women's sports. And we also then saw the attempt to, I think, potential scrubbing of um, of media sites and social media sites of another candidates' uh, trans yeah posts and uh, mentions uh, that have said some pretty horrible stuff about trans people, trans mask people in particular. and yeah I'm wondering if you can tell us about the bill that Senator Chandler has put up and provide a bit of context about this. So how does it fit into a suite of anti-trans legislative initiatives that have cropped up in various states around Australia over the past few years?
3: good question um so this bill the uh slave Women's sports bill uh 2022 it's got a long title but i'm not going to drop that uh so as you mentioned there was a candidate who scrubbed their social media recently and the candidate in question was involved with uh save women sports australia so this is kind of the i think the culmination of that political project uh the bill makes it legal to provide single sex sports quote unquote uh to achieve that it redefines sex and sex discrimination Act to group trans people with their assigned sex so it's men with trans women uh cis cis women with trans men um so those are two wholly separate payloads uh the first part the single sex sports part that basically locks trans women and girls out of correctly gendered sports now there's no data to suggest there's actually like a functional need for this like you might remember the recent kerfuffle around leah thomas in the u.s which was manufactured by strategically misrepresenting the data um Peak bodies don't want it. Uh, Netball Australia on this one particularly said uh, government doesn't need to intervene. Well, you know, they can handle this themselves, which is consistent with previous times this has happened. There was a similar incident with World Rugby about a year ago. Um, His sportswomen have consistently favoured the inclusion of trans women as women. Uh, And, look, Australia is a sports-mad country. Uh, The point of this bill, really, is to exclude trans girls from sport-based school communities particularly, uh, and trans women from a major aspect of public life. Um, so that's that's the thrust of the the sports part of the bill. Uh, the redefinition of the sex in the Sex Discrimination Act is more wide-ranging, uh, because basically it uh, it touches on the way sex and gender identity are defined in the Act. Right now, for the trans protections in the Act to work, sex and gender identity have to be defined the way they are. If you define sex in a way that excludes trans people. Uh it has the potential to nullify a lot of the a lot to all of the federal the federal uh, anti trans discrimination protections in the act uh I'm not a lawyer, but that's the advice that i've received uh so we don't know how many of the protections this is going to nullify because uh we amended the bill in twenty thirteen specifically to prevent that um and now we're coming back to this pre twenty thirteen status quo um you asked about context uh this is not the first anti-trans legislative push. This has been going on for about a bit over one election cycle now. Uh, first big one in the women's sport theme, we also have uh, Section 28 slash Don't Say Gay bills, which forbid schools and governments from discussing the existence of queer and trans people. Uh, there was also a misgendering as free speech bill, uh, which there was one in Queensland in 2020 that got shot down uh, this is different because this is the first time a major party like the coalition has backed the Bush and it's at the federal level. So this is really the big the big breakout moment for them. This is where they go mainstream.
2: Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, people might be familiar with... Yeah, You know, things like uh, Mark Latham in New South Wales putting up uh, particular bills. There was a recent one defeated. And I encourage people to to keep an eye on that because, you know, this is happening at various levels of government. But as you mentioned, it is very concerning to see it at the federal level. We also recently saw public backlash against Labour leader Anthony Albanese's claim that men couldn't have babies. And of course, this all comes off the back of heated media and political debate over anti-trans legislation um, in the form of the religious discrimination bill that we saw in February um, and that you alluded to before. And many advocates have noted that framing trans identities and lives as a legitimate topic for political debate is in itself harmful. And I was hoping that you could tell us a bit about why.
3: Sure. Um, so I think an important part of the context here is really that the uh, the scientific, like the medical and social science consensus on why trans healthcare is necessary, why trans rights are necessary. Like, it's really, really strong consensus. Like, the, the scientific climate, the consensus on climate change is like literally 100% of scientists, and it's, it's kind of on that order. So there are a couple of reasons that it's not... That it's harmful, I think, to debate under these circumstances. Uh, first one is probably that it encourages the perception that there is a debate. Like if someone says the sky is red, and I mean, it's clearly not red, so the correct response is, <laughs> okay, not. Um, it's oh, I must protest. It's blue for these reasons. You know, you just go, Haha, yeah, okay, cool guy. Um, second, second one is probably that. Debating under these circumstances gives transphobes access to your platform, to your audience, to the people who believe in you. Lets them sort of surf on your trust. Lets them figure out how to convince your audience. Like, if your friends are like, oh, I want a peer-reviewed paper from a journal to believe this, there's a whole anti-trans bad science ecosystem ready to pump, pump out something that looks like what they asked for. And if you look closely enough, you can see that it's fake or flawed or what have you or, you know... um dishonestly constructed, but nobody has the time to check everything.
1: Mm. Uh,
3: And I think probably the most direct harm, uh, and the third major harm, is having a public debate legitimises acting on it in the interpersonal level. Like, if MPs and senators can be transphobic in Parliament and the media, then it must be okay to be uh, transphobic in the community and the home, because after all, we're just asking questions. It's a legitimate debate, so the narrative goes.
2: Mm. Yeah, it is... It really does filter across all of these levels. And I think um, especially, uh, you know, if people are 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 personally unfamiliar with trans and gender diverse people, they don't know any trans and gender diverse people or they think they don't know any trans and gender diverse people. Um, it really yeah. then allows people to be pushed in one way rather than the other to engage uh, in a way that. Uh, You know, starts off with the premise that undermines trans identities rather than engaging from, I guess, like a, a respect and rights and dignity based perspective. Now, Australian transphobia and the legislative creep against some of the limited and hard-fought wins that trans people have achieved in terms of safety, gender affirmation and representation here sits within a global context where trans people are increasingly becoming an explicit target in political campaigns uh, with recent horrifying legislation of active discrimination against trans children and young people across several US states being a case in point. And also in the UK, we recently saw the um, uh, the proposal to excise Uh, conversion therapy for trans people from a bill against conversion therapy so could you speak to where australia is situated in this international context
3: yeah absolutely um so we are we are global citizens uh which in this case is not necessarily helpful uh, because we get to be infected by other people's uh other other people's bigotry uh especially uh the us and uk's bigotry in this case so um Basically, the anti-trans movement got started in continental Europe in the early 2010s. It's sort of spread to the US and the UK since then. It's been pushed by a number of powerful institutions, including states. Um, There's a 2021 foreign affairs briefing to the European Parliament here, uh, identifying the Russian Federation as a key player, saying Russia wants to, um, quote, sow friction and disunity between European Union member states by targeting trans rights. Um, there should have been an unquote there, but OK. Uh, so we have a lot of imported concepts. Like, if you, uh, if you hear anyone in Australia talking about, oh, this gender ideology converting our kids, you know, I mean, that, was a, oh, that concept started circulating in Poland, I believe. Um, there's, a, there's now a fight in Victoria, basically, about whether the um, conversion therapy ban there a couple of years ago was appropriate, which, as you say, is mirroring the uh, trans-conversion therapy fight in the UK. Uh, where Prime Minister Boris Johnson is currently trying to exclude trans people from the scope of conversion therapy protections. Uh, but I think for us, possibly the most relevant country is the US uh, for a bunch of political and constitutional reasons. But what really sticks with me is right now, they're at the point of trying to rip away medically necessary transition therapy, originally from trans kids and now some states are starting on trans adults. Um, the starting gun for that was um, was a, state women's sports bill, which was the uh, Idaho Fairness and Women's Sports Act, that was signed into law in March 2020, so two years and one months ago. So it can all go—it can all go sideways really fast.
2: Mm. Yeah, and I think also it really speaks to the fact that this—you know—these discourses circulate, this language circulates, and it's picked up in a variety of different areas and. Um, something that I also wanted to very briefly touch on is where a quote unquote gender critical feminist movement sits in terms of other kind of radical fringe groups and the talking points that people should be keeping an, out for, uh, an eye out for rather as they filter further into mainstream discussions. Because, you know, um, I also want to plug the work of Professor Sandy O'Sullivan here talking about transness, um, or sorry, uh, you know, transphobia being a part of the colonial project, but there are also these specific um, specific talking points and language that do kind of circulate within these groups.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I, I have to absolutely agree with your endorsement of uh, Professor O'Sullivan's work, which I found incredibly helpful. Um, as you mentioned, there's a lot of sort of... Uh, there's definitely a context with right-wing extremism and transphobia, like there was there was a functioning uh, gender clinic in Berlin from 1999 until the Nazis got down in 1983, so that kind of set the tone for the following century. Um, I guess we're seeing uh, convergence between uh, the gender critical feminist movement, quote, unquote, and also Christian Dominionism, uh, anti-Semitism, uh, white supremacy. I think with respect to Christian Dominionism, the big political fight that they're having there is over abortion rights. Uh, there was a UK court case a while back which was against uh, trans healthcare for kids which was actually funded by an anti-abortion organisation, but the case law that it created uh, provided a basis to restrict abortion rights. Uh, and the concept in question was uh, gillic competence, which we have to look out for, because that's also on our case law. So there's the possibility of a similar case here. Um, in terms of anti-Semitism, there's what were originally fringe theories, basically, that uh, transness is a plot by uh, three billionaires, all of whom are uh, Jewish, uh, one of whom is George Soros, as is tradition of this kind of thing. It's basically the same. Uh, it's the blood libel in a modern in a modern format. Uh, you have white supremacy, which I think conceives of white trans men in particular as having a national duty to breed. Uh, if you'll pardon, if you'll pardon the crudity of that formulation, mm. um, and the convergence is two ways. Like you have uh, groups from the Capitol attack in January 2021 who were originally mostly racist, who are now more explicitly transphobic. Uh, you've got prominent neo-Nazis talking about trying to draw gender crits into their movement. Uh, in terms of talking points, uh, I think look for words like uh, rapid onset gender dysphoria, sex-based rights, transition regret. Those are sort of red flags that you're dealing with a fairly heavily ideological line of attack which has been uh, confronted or disproven elsewhere. Look for claims that trans people are new or never existed or they're misguided or they're dangerous or transition doesn't work or transition is a sickness. Any of that, it's just a sign of a purely ideological attack.
2: Yeah, definitely. And I think you've done an excellent job of summarizing so much of that dense information so quickly. Um, Now, Thank you know, you. <laughs> yeah, you. It was very difficult. Well, you, you were amazing. <laughs> and I really hope that this is the impetus for more people to start having these conversations so that we can unpack various parts of what you've touched on, because there's such a huge range. But you've been compiling an election watch on trans issues for the upcoming federal election. And just in view of wrapping up, I was hoping that you could give us an overview of some of the early takeaways on trans rights or anti-trans proposals in major parties' political campaigns.
3: Sure. Um, basically, so uh, major political actors are the Greens, the Coalition, One Nation and Labor. Uh, Greens are having a bit of a, a fight about organisational culture, but they're endorsed policies, probably best in class. Uh, on the other side, you have One Nation and the Coalition forming a bloc. Uh, One Nation are mostly the extremists at the moment. The Coalition are the sensible, just-asking-questions types. Uh, Labor and liberal wets in the middle. It'll be interesting to see what happens with the wets, because they seem to be an artefact largely of four-party discipline. Uh, which is great for trans people, but not so great for the coalition, so they might not be around for too much longer. Uh, Labor has an OK trans... Sorry, refocusing. Uh Labor has an OK trans affairs platform. It's missing bits. They also have a credibility issue. Uh, Labor loves to strategically sacrifice trans needs. Uh, Albo has answered a few gotcha questions by going, oh, yeah, men can't have babies, which is objectively untrue. It doesn't inspire confidence. Mm. Um, so we we're really, really waiting to see how that unfolds, but uh, things are looking pretty grim for this election cycle.
2: Yeah, definitely. And you know, for people that want to keep up to date with these kinds of issues and get involved in the fight for trans rights, uh, where would you recommend people to go to find out more about some of these concerns you've outlined?
3: Um, within Australia, I think probably uh, Acon Trans Hub, Equality uh, Australia. There are a couple of places on Facebook that do great work. Uh, LGBTI Rights Australia, Trans Health Australia, a few news sources, uh, out in Perth, Star Observer, the Q News, the, uh, the Trans Advocate. There are a few foreign analysis sources, which are excellent. Um, there's gender analysis with Zinia Jones, which is North America based. Trans Safety Network, who are UK based, but, um, I get to reuse a lot of their analysis because a lot of, uh, a lot of our local ZERF groups, uh, gender group groups, pardon me, are actually, uh, run from the UK. Um, there's also individual sources. I think in the US Jude Doyle, Krista Peterson, Aaron Reid, uh, in the UK Mallory Moore, David Paisley. Um I think if people want to participate, they they can write their state MP, federal MP, senators. Uh but really fight transphobia over your kitchen table, don't accept it at home. Um we're out of time. We can go from where we are to strategic level total withdrawal of gender transition in less than one election cycle. If people don't stand up and be brave now, whoever they are, they might not get another chance.
2: Yeah, I mean, I I just can't do anything but echo that really important statement. Isabel, thank you so, so much for taking the time to talk us through uh, a huge range of issues, but um, in a really considered and clear way. And I really hope that our listeners got a lot out of this and we will be linking to those resources in our show notes. Thank you, Isabel.
3: My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.
2: And that was Isabel Morton, who's a community member who's been involved in analyzing government policy and legislative pushes in Australia that affect trans and gender diverse people. And she joined us today to speak about a range of issues surrounding the discussion of trans people in Australian politics and media, including the operation and impacts of framing trans lives and identities as a legitimate arena for debate. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 on your AM dial, or you might be streaming live at 3CR.org.au forward slash streaming.
4: Hi, I'm Michelle Brier, Amani Dubonais, Ojibwe from Canada.
2: And I am Shakti Hayes from the Cree Nation, Canada.
4: And you're listening to 3CR
0: Community Radio.
4: And we love and support community radio. Why?
0: Because it speaks the truth. It's summer programming on 3CR and there's so many reasons to stay tuned. Shorts, features, documentaries, new and unusual music and highlights from 2022. To check out our summer grid, go to 3cr.org.au forward slash summer specials. There's plenty of specialist music programs to choose from on the 3CR grid. Explore the 3CR schedule online at 3cr.org.au. Tune in to 3CR 855 AM on your digital radio or streaming live at 3cr.org.au. Let our music make you happy.
2: You're listening to 3CR Breakfast Summer Programming. Over summer, we'll be joining you with Radical Radio, including highlights from our news coverage across all of our breakfast shows. For summer grid details, you can head to 3cr.org.au forward slash summer specials, and you can also listen back to our podcasts by heading to 3cr.org.au forward slash breakfast.
5: And now uh, we are joined by an extremely special guest, uh, Navi Karan, who is a Minjin-based trans goddess and an upcoming producer, multimedia artist, and changemaker. Through storytelling and the practice of culture, Navi Karan wants to support the care of the land, elders, and children to come. Thank you so much for joining us here today. How are you today?
6: I am so fantastic. Thank you so much for having me.
5: No, of course, absolute pleasure. Um, I cannot wait for this incredible uh, interview time. (laughs) I don't know what is going on in my brain, Uh, but I'm going to restart and ask maybe the first question. Uh, Maybe would you mind starting with what drew you to being a performer and your recent journey into the arts?
6: Thank you. Um, It's actually a pretty shallow story. I really liked the attention people gave me when I went up on stage and performed, really. And mm-hmm. that went on for a few years before I started realizing that storytelling is a responsibility and the practice of storytelling is the practice of culture. And because, especially when you look at the impacts of colonization, especially through the violence in Eurasia, the practice of storytelling from people of culture has been taken away. And so realizing that um i am one of the last few storytellers when it comes um directly into my lineage and i decided to take it on as a role and a responsibility
5: yeah i think it's um i think being <laughs> i don't think it's a shallow thing at all i think wanting attention and um wanting to be on stage and, and enjoying the love i think is also a beautiful thing and um, <laughs> being able to understand that storytelling is a responsibility is a really beautiful you know, gift that you hold. And I know that uh, you recently ventured into DJing and Mm. as a fellow DJ, I think I can see the scene like shifting towards a community focus and artists who are truly authentic are being celebrated. And I think it's also helped me come into my own as an artist. Um, Mm. Would you like to maybe talk about why you wanted to take this path and what you're excited about?
6: Absolutely. Absolutely music is so fascinating and i think music has so much power i predominantly wanted to begin djing because i wanted to play the music that i grew up with and a lot of it was music from india and it gave me an opportunity to take space really as a trans person and a trans brown person and i very initially decided to predominantly focus on South Asian music, especially because we are in an age where music is so accessible. And it is it is unlike any other times where, you know, you can just simply go online and be able to download a song and then mix it into something else. And I quite enjoy the magic of that, and especially to be able to perform that. I feel like a magician live, and, you know, I'm just plugging something in and trying to mix all of this music and sound and especially to take care of your audience. I I I truly feel like an auntie every time I'm either on a stage or I'm DJing because I feel so damn responsible for what I'm doing and to care for everyone who's there and to just create a good space because especially we are alive at a time, you know, we we want to pretend the pandemic is over, we want to pretend we are not in a climate crisis and, you know, the major systems around us that are quite hectic and, you know, what? where does that put us as storytellers and as DJs and as mu- musicians? And to me, that answer comes as, you know, as a place of care and a place of nourishment.
5: Yeah, absolutely. I think knowing that um, you see being on stage and like remixing all the tracks, it really is like taking care of the crowd. And I know that in... A lot of DJ um, lingo, it's like crowd control, um, which makes it sound like you (laughs) have some sort of strange superpower. But really, you are just genuinely looking after everybody like an auntie. Um, So next time, maybe we should all just be calling DJs our favorite aunties.
1: Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> absolutely
5: <laughs> um I think also following on from this I know that you know selecting all your tracks and like digging through the depths of a record store for a vinyls or going on some <laughs> random internet trail to find the perfect remix that matches with your perfect song um, is genuinely one of the best parts of DJing and I think you know, as you've described, blending songs from different cultures together to create um, a beautiful atmosphere. Uh, I'm curious to know how you go about, you know, selecting your tracks and where do you find them?
6: That's such a good question. I think to me, it comes down to intersectionality. I, In all of my work, really, I'm very curious about whose voice or who is not present in the room and what does it take to make these spaces accessible one of the other things that I'm really curious about exploring through teaching is to give space and representation to voices um, that we don't usually hear in a club or in a public or in a space that you know where people can be empowered not just the artists but also you know the people within the audiences Brisbane Mianjin is has a huge South Asian population and we never see them at events, we never see them at theater shows, we never see them at parties. But they're there, you know. And so to be able to um, find music that I know will cater to that audience. Um, I also think, you know, when I look for music, I'm looking for music that has magic, that has masala, that has taste to it, that is, you know, will add more than just to the vibe will give people a way of exploring laughter and joy and movement in a way that steps away from shame, that steps away from insecurity. And so when I'm looking for music, it it predominantly happens to be um, women of color, black and indigenous women that I'm playing. And then it's really about creating the vibe.
5: Yeah, absolutely. I think knowing that, um, you want to find the songs with the extra masala is very important. Um, mm. you need to <laughs> put out your first mix and just call it masala mix. Extraordinary. Yes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um,
5: and I also know in preparation for the interview, I've been listening to your Spotify, which we will also link, which everybody needs to listen to, um, I was listening to the songs Where Are You From? and If My Genders Were the Entire Solar System. And what really stands out to me is that they feel so different musically and in production. But what stands out is that how seamlessly you're able to, I guess, blend poetry and expression and music to create that like feeling that is completely immersive that feels like you can't look away from uh, or not feel. And I think these songs are truly a gift. And Could you maybe speak on what the songs mean to you and the process of writing and producing them?
6: Thank you so much for listening. That's so sweet and really appreciate it. All of the credits for the music goes to my partner and who's also my music producer, Levi Kohler. And we spend a lot of time having conversations. We argue, we prod, we explore, we Tear things apart until we get this creation that you know fits. With both where we from and solar systems, we really didn't know what it would sound like, and we just kept you know tearing and tearing and tearing it apart until we kind of arrived at a song, uh, at a sound. We are really curious about the potentials of sound and what sound, what can happen with sound and where we can take it. We. Oh, gosh. The process of songwriting and producing. We are, so both of these songs, Where You From and solar system are part of our bigger work called Brown Church, which is a massive theatre work that we're in the process of producing. We're not allowed to say yet where we're performing it, but it is happening in September. I can say that much in <laughs> Mianjin. Um, and all of the music will be available as an album just before the show happens. Um, I think this is the first time I'm announcing this publicly. Um, and The process of writing it is essentially we want to tell a big story of queer liberation of black and indigenous and people of color liberation and what that looks like when we intentionally build anti-racist spaces that are not just you know anti-racist for the sake of being anti-racist but you know contextualizes us as storytellers within bigger movements of change and shifts and so we have a massive narrative we're trying to tell through this album and this theater work and and these pieces have been, you know, some of this has already been written as a part of Brown Church, which we also performed last year um, as a, from a collection of poems that I've written. And then it's just Levi and I figuring out what would sound best musically.
5: Yeah, it sounds... Well, first thing, I want to acknowledge how wonderful it is that you announced Brown Church on this 3CR-exclusive <laughs> Thursday <laughs> breakfast. <laughs> um, but it's so... I, I feel like everything that you... Uh, talking about in terms of your music or theatre production is all about just making people feel and making people feel seen and bringing people together and in a really authentic way. And I just want to, you know, commend Thank you for you. that because it's not an easy thing to do and also to stay true to that throughout your entire process. Um, Absolutely.
6: I also want to say, it, I really appreciate how much Um, I really appreciate you saying that because I think the journey has been quite isolating and is often isolating for people of colour, for queer, trans people and disabled folks. And to be seen by others from the community is really appreciated. And I think it sort of um, validates the work and, you know, it kind of gives more purpose to it.
5: Yep. Uh, I think the purpose is found uh, so clearly is yes, when you're listening to your music or um, seeing you perform, I think it's hard, <laughs> I think it's hard to miss it. So uh, thank you for the work that you continue to do. And I can't wait to go to all of it, <laughs> honestly, and uh, promote it as much as possible. But thank you so much again for being on the show and bringing such uh really warm and inviting energy and being vulnerable and opening up and, uh you can hear all the excitement in your your voice every time that you speak. So I just want to thank you again for your time. Um and if you have anything else to add, maybe we'll go play your song, um, if my genders were the entire soul system.
6: Thank you so much. And you have a good morning, Ines.
5: Okay, thank you, Delvigon. Have a good day. Bye. Bye. <laughs> That was an interview with Navi Curran, who's a Mianjin-based trans goddess and an upcoming producer, artist, changemaker and DJ. And now we will play the song If My Genders Were the Entire Solar System.
4: If men are from Mars and women are from Venus, then I am the entire solar system and beyond as seen through my mother's eyes. If men are from Mars and women are from Venus, then I am the genders of my ancestors. Revolving around the sun, orients me to do what I am set to do. This is my orbit. I am the people that I come from, as held together by my mother to be the mother that I am. If men are from Mars, and women are from Venus, then I am beyond this binary. I am multiplicity. I am love. This is spiritual travel. If people are from here, and others are from there, then I am the entire rainforest breathing life. And the sky is filtering light. I am heart. I am stardust and a beckon I am the survival of intergenerational desecration I am healing I am realizing I am grounding I'm healing. I'm realizing. I am grounding. I am multiplicity.
6: I think 3CR is the voice of the people, speaking back to the establishment and telling them what they think, and sometimes it's something they don't want to hear.
0: And now we're going to go to a track. This one's Wave by Moju.
7: same book but on a different page too soon and now it's too late baby know I love you but I can't stay dipping in and out of this way dipping in and out of this way dipping in way, dipping in and out of this way, late night, can't sleep, want you beside me, The right thing
0: on three CR Thursday breakfast, and that was Wave by Moju.
6: Hi! I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Papua. Tuesday 6 until 7 30
4: pm. News and music from West Papua.
2: You've been listening to Thursday Breakfast Summer Programming on 3CR Community Radio, featuring highlights from trans and gender diverse folks who spoke with us across 2022. Check out our summer grid at 3cr.org.au forward slash summer specials.
5: And now the next interview will be with Natalie Felix, who is a writer, feminist and activist who has published both fiction and nonfiction work. These days, Natalie has a focus on bringing empowerment to queer and disabled people throughout, through advocacy and representation. Today, Natalie joins us to talk all things trans fiction, coping with rejection, staying motivated, and what inspires her writing practice. Good morning, Natalie.
8: Good morning, Layla. Thank you so much for having me.
5: Oh, we're so
0: happy to have you this morning. So I thought I would just start by talking a little bit about how I was introduced to your work. So Priya very kindly introduced me to your work through the article that you wrote for Siren Sport last month on the impact of the trans trans women in sport debate. And while we won't be speaking to this directly today, I did want to preface our chat by reiterating some really important points that you brought to light. Um, What I kind of understood from that article and what I've also been thinking about for a while is that the trans women in sport debate is, at its core, fundamentally dehumanising. It reduces the experiences of trans people, in particular trans women, down to a body and a body that is up for public debate and scrutiny. So... In resistance to this reductive narrative that so often dominates trans representation in media, today, you and I will be focusing on the joys, the fears, and the complexities of flourishing trans voices. So yes, I'm very excited to have this chat with you. Me too. (laughs) I thought we could start by learning a little bit more about you, Natalie. Could Mm -hmm. you tell me how your journey as a writer began and what you've been working on lately?
8: So I basically started where a lot of um, writers start, which is just writing dumb shit in high school mm-hmm. when I was associating from my classes. Um, and that kind of just kept on going and going and going. And I became that kid that every parent is afraid that their kid is going to turn into. It's like, I want to be a writer when I grow up mm-hmm. um, instead of, you know, doing anything in STEM or whatever people are supposed to do these days. Um yeah, I stuck with it and I ended up doing a lot of writing for video games and I joined a whole bunch of like modding projects and stuff, which were a lot of fun, toxic in hindsight, but a lot of fun. (laughs) Um, And yeah, I ended up managing to get one book published pre-transition for a really small fairy press, which was just about a um, bunch of animals being depressed in the American wilderness. (laughs) Thank you. And um, after I came out, I um, just basically did writing for my partners. I did it as a way of like showing that I loved them and I made visual novels um, just, you know, for fun and because they made really nice. Um, creative little presents for birthdays and stuff. Um, but when I actually, um, met other trans writers, I realized how good the work is and how, you know, underappreciated it is. And I was like, wow, I should really get back into this. And yeah, because like you can really change people's lives by just, you know, putting Fiction out there, putting voices out there, and there's so little of it that actually gets appreciated in the world. And that's such a tragedy because we have to work so hard
1: Mm.
8: just to get any kind of like inlet into, you know, the debate, even our debate, the debate about our lives. Our voices are just really, you know, considered second best somehow. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I've um, managed to finish my first. Proper novel, which is a young adult um, literary fiction novel about a um, a young seventeen, um, sorry, sixteen year old girl called Ingrid who um, basically comes to terms with all the trauma and mental health issues that she's dealing with at
1: mm-hmm.
8: her high school, um, and that is trying to shine a light not just on you know the experiences of trans women in general, but also the trauma that transphobia in high school and the type of, like, gaslighting and just general dismissiveness can have on you at, Mm. like, an incredibly young age. Like, it's really kind of incredibly fucked up that you have children who on the internet are being constantly told that they're, like, groomers and rapists and stuff. And I really don't think that we talk just enough about the trauma that those have on just, like, young children. It's true. Um, Um, And I'm also working on um, another book, which is also designed to shine a light on the trans women in sports debate. Um, And it's like, yeah, just trying to demonstrate what I said in my article, which is that the idea that trans women have an unfair advantage in sport is ridiculous because we're disadvantaged in literally every aspect of our lives. Like, you can kind of see that play out. Mm-hmm. There hasn't been a single trans person who's actually won a freaking tournament, even though we've been eligible for decades.
0: <laughs> yeah, it really is, I think, a debate about the humanity of trans people and not about the reality of the actual situation of trans people in sport. Um, thank you for sharing that background. I think one thing that stood out to me is that it's really important to validate, you know, your coping mechanisms and the things you kind of draw on to get by when you're younger. And that can turn into something really special that other people can share as well. Uh, speaking of sharing, um, when I was, writing these uh, questions, I was reflecting on my own experience, kind of being a creative and sharing work. And most forms of creative practice require us to really put ourselves out there. And this can be a pretty vulnerable experience, especially when the work you're sharing sits so close to home. And for many trans and queer creators, uh, this means our practice can be deeply linked to our sense of self. So, I wanted to ask you, how do you stay motivated when you're dealing with rejections?
8: Um, bold of you to say that I do. Um, I do my best. There's only so much that someone can do. Um I think the best thing that I have learned is that it's just community, like just the people around me are some of the most amazing people I think probably exist in the world that's a bold claim but like from my perspective that's true Mm -hmm. and they have demonstrated to me like above and beyond how important the work that not just that I do but like all of us do like all of us who are like trying hard to be the activists who are like dealing with the constant bullshit and constantly swamping ourselves you know with the knowledge that like it's such a depressing, awful time to be a trans person in the world at the moment. But, you know, like, I feel like a lot of um, activists in general feel the same thing. Like, it's not just us. And, like, the same things always get said. It's just when you, like, the rewards that you get, even if they're few and far between, constantly outweigh all the, you know, constant burdens that are placed on yourself and the pressure and sometimes it really just helps to get creative as well which is something that I learned like not just going through the general mainstream processes of trying to get my work out there but like trying to find other ways of trying to get my work out there and other mediums that I can go through like I've also thought about like writing plays because I know books aren't accessible Mm -hmm. to everyone so basically For me, it's just firing as many shots at a target as possible and eventually one of them lands. And I know that when one of them does land, it's all going to be worth it.
0: Yeah, I think that's really good advice. And um, while acknowledging that we need to emphasise our experience as trans and queer people, I do have to do a little reminder and a heads up that a bit of a language warning, and we do have to keep it PG in case any of our baby trans and queer people are listening today. Yeah. Um, Sorry. No, no, that's okay. It's, you know, this is a necessary thing and I believe it's about context. It's not about the words themselves. Um, But so on the topic of, um, I don't know, language, inspiring language, shall we say, (laughs) um, I wanted to ask next, what does inspire you to write? Um, and this could be anything, you know, it doesn't have to be other writing Uh and something that I'm really curious about because I do do some writing, but I also find it pretty difficult to discipline myself. So I always like to ask people, um, and other creatives, do you have any like daily practices that kind of help you focus your energy, help you focus your emotions and your experience? Well,
8: I have EDS, which means I basically need to do morning exercises anyway. So when I'm doing those, because I tend to, like, they're repetitive and boring, I tend to just think about what types of things I want to do. And, like, I often get, like, you know, do music or Mm. have YouTube or something in the background while I'm doing that. And that kind of, like, background noise really kind of puts me in the zone. And I'm like what would my characters be doing now? Because I really do grow to love my characters. I think about mm. what they're doing when I'm not writing them, if that makes sense. Like, you know, what are their routines every day? Um Because my characters, like, are literally just, you know, they're inspired a lot just by the people I meet because the people I meet don't tend to get, like, reflected in you know work that you tend to find in a bookstore very often at all Mm. so being able to like you know just take people I meet just when I'm like going out with friends or whatever and you know thinking about their personalities their lived experiences and all that kind of stuff and putting them into a book or a situation yeah you can get a lot of magic just off of that um I also just have TV shows playing in the background, which doesn't work for everyone, but it does for me. I managed to watch every episode of The Crown that way, which is so much better than it has any right
0: to be. Oh, my God. (laughs) That is very impressive. Yeah. (laughs) Multitasking at its finest. I wonder if The Crown kind of made it into any of your writing.
8: (laughs) I don't know. I'd be curious if anyone sees The Influence. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Yeah, I'm going to have to analyse that when um, your novel comes out. (laughs) Oh,
8: yeah, when it comes out. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Still waiting for that.
0: (laughs) So, yeah, you mentioned before that you have a completed, yet-to-be-published novel, so heads Mm -hmm. up any publishers out there um, if you want to publish some trans fiction excellence, this is the place to do it. And you're currently embarking on a second novel, Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to ask you to explain a bit more what is trans fiction? This is um, a phrase that I've heard you use to describe not just work by trans people, but kind of as like a uh, framework for writing or a lens to write through. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and maybe you could even go into a bit more about how you develop your fictional characters and their inner worlds. Y- yes.
8: Yeah, so, um, like, when I think of trans people as well, like it's an umbrella term that encompasses so many different varieties of people. And in my opinion, one of the most defining um, characteristics is the fact that we're all outside of the gender binary. And like trans fiction, in my opinion, comes not just to like a view on the hierarchical roles constructed by the patriarchy, but it's about a general love for humanity at its finest.
1: Mm -hmm.
8: Um, And when I think about my characters, I just think about, you know, what is it about humanity that shines through when you take away all those, like, preconceived ideas of what a man is, what a woman is, anything like that. And you can get a lot of really interesting stuff from that, like... You can find empowerment in just things that a lot of society, I think, takes for granted, just like fashion and like, I don't know, like, (laughs) does this make sense? Yeah, this
0: makes sense. Yeah, I think um, that all these little things really play big roles in building um, who we are and how we face the world. And it makes a lot of sense that those are the things that you think about when you're developing a character character. Yeah. Um, and um,
8: th- w- Sorry, one of the things I was um, thinking about as well is that um, because of trans misogyny, um, as a trans woman, we constantly get attacked just for being successful as well. Mm-hmm. And that's something that like I feel like a lot of trans people, even if they don't realize it, it really, you know, screws around with their own psyche as well. Mm-hmm. And you can get a lot of mileage just from trans um, trans femme self love because yeah. it's such a powerful thing to just take a step back and realise wow I've actually done so much good in my life and no one even notices or appreciates it but I can do that for myself
1: mm-hmm.
8: yeah. <clears throat> um, yeah everything's turned up to 11 when you're a trans woman like class dynamics um, you know just romance and love as well like, there's so much passion and emotion in trans fiction. Um, one of my focuses is just on just gentle slice-of-life stories mm-hmm. because, again, like, there's so much, like, passion and variety in trans stories, but you just don't find them, and that's really, really sad. I feel like there would be a lot more um, safety in a lot of um, trans women's, like, insecurities and things like that if... There was just an idea that wow, I'm not alone. I have my representation. Like, you know, everyone knows how important representation is. So yeah, it really needs to get out there.
0: It is really, really important. And yeah, I guess just thinking about how your experience can be so amplified when you're a long, young person living in in like within intersections of queer and trans, um, etc. Uh, So it's really important that stories like yours and voices like yours actually reach their audiences and reach out to those people that might be feeling isolated or, you know, just want to see some of their experience reflected in mainstream media or media in general. So speaking yeah. about barriers, I wanted to ask, what are some major barriers? What do you consider the major barriers facing trans fiction writing at the moment? And why is it just so absolutely crucial that trans voices are being published and actually reaching those audiences?
8: Well, I think I touched on that before, mm-hmm. just like, you know, um, there is so much like unnecessary insecurity and fear of taking up space that comes mm. like whenever I meet like young trans women in particular. And it really, really sad. And I feel like representation is one of the major things that could help with that. Not just out of boosting the self esteem and feeling seen from the trans women's perspective, but also cis people need to know that a lot of their preconceived ideas of what a trans person life trans person's life is is so off kilter. Um, and a lot of cis people, like even cis people in like publishing that I've met, like are really reluctant to accept that. And it's really kind of unusual. Like you would think that they would think that I would know, but somehow the idea of their image of what a trans woman is being threatened is worse to them than actually learning
1: mm. <laughs>
8: from, from me. Um, like, you know, I touched on trans misogyny before as well, um, And just the fear of trans women having success like that, in my opinion, is the foundation of where the trans women in sports debate comes from, because it shouldn't be something that people should be afraid of. And yet it really is. And I wish that, you know, broader cisgender society could stop being so afraid of just trans women having an opportunity for success, because we do have so much to offer the world. Yeah. Um, like, um, another trans writer, Madison Stoff, wrote a really powerful essay about how cis people can benefit so much from fighting transphobia as well, not just like an allyship thing, but also broader in general, like to themselves, because the gender binary asphyxiates everyone. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And although, um, we all have our own unique experiences, these are really systemic forms mm. of, um, abuse and oppression that affect us all, um, yeah. no matter what your gender is. So it's really important that we remember that we're in this fight together. Yeah. Um, and next up, I wanted to ask, what is a story that you have really enjoyed telling or writing Or a piece of writing that holds significant meaning for you?
8: Um, I think that the story that I'm writing at the moment, which is about, yeah, just a a trans woman who has an aspiration to be a professional tennis player um, who quickly finds out that because she's, like, an incredibly wealthy person, as a lot of people who are destined to become elite athletes are, um, and then she meets other trans women who are, like, living deeply in poverty. And she learned so much about how her community actually has to survive. That's a piece of writing that I'm enjoying reading, um, writing the most at the moment, just because, like, it reminds me so much of my own experiences. And it's I think it's just also given me, like, a lot of closure in general, just to put that out there and know that, like the class dynamics at play there are going to be really important for other people to know that, like, I do see it. And, like, broader society needs to see it as well. Like, if you go to, like, trans share houses, there are, like, you know, I've been to share- trans share houses where there are, like, six people crammed into, like, a two-bedroom flat. Like, mm-hmm. it is, like, you know, something out of, like, Charles Dickens or whatever. <laughs> like, but, you know when people talk about, like, affordable housing, no one thinks about that kind of stuff. No one wants to examine the intersection intersectionality at play there. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of other pieces of writing that I've enjoyed um, and that have really meant a lot to me, um, I've been getting really into Indigenous history at the moment, and a big shout-out to Claire Coleman as well. She is so inspiring. Um, and, like, I feel like the... Ferocity through which she wants to inform the world about, um, the lies of white supremacy, especially in Australia and talk about how much Aboriginal society has to offer. I think has been really inspiring to me as well. You know, when we talk, we talked before about, um, you know, how do you stay motivated? Just seeing the, um, success and the passion for other people doing the same thing as me again is just. It means
6: so much.
8: Mm -hmm. Um, And, yeah, just thinking, like, like, I think when it comes to stories that mean a lot to me, just thinking about the life story of not just myself but, like, my friends as well. Like, (laughs) our lives are so weird. Like, at the moment, I'm dealing, like, helping friends through, like, domestic violence orders and real estate agents abusing their powers and yet Mm. like you know the next morning i'm on here doing this and i also like plan on meeting politicians like what is my life (laughs) like i did not imagine i would be doing this when i was like writing to cope with dissociating in class Yeah. But I'm not complaining.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You've painted a really vivid and passionate, um, picture of the things you kind of hold dear and the things that you, that inspire you. And just to finish off our chat, I'm really excited for this. Um, but you've (laughs) said that you're going to share a short excerpt from your most recent novel. So yeah, as our, as our final, um, segment, I was wondering if you could read that for us.
8: Okay, so um, early on in the novel, um, the main character Ingrid, um, she has a big crush in her best friend Emma, who is a um, you know a school musician, um, and she gets invited to a concert where Emma is performing, um, but it ends really badly because of Ingrid's autism and you know the sensory overwhelm that she gets at the concert as well as the, like, internal sense of inferiority and self-hatred she has.
1: Mm.
8: Yeah, it leads her to a panic attack, so that's what I'm planning on reading now. I hope you. you like it. <laughs> I applaud with the audience as Emma and the rest of the ensemble bows. Emma smiles in elation and relief. My heart is jumping and spinning. I feel my breath sprinting beyond my reach. I'm going to see if I can find Emma, her mum says. You two can wait at the kiosk. I'll go and get you some food. I sweep with the audience into the entrance hall. All my senses stab against my mind. I slither in between all the people to the wall, and I lean against it, sweating, panting. The lights in here are scarring my eyes, and the rumble of the people busting around is shooting spears into my eardrums. Empty chip packets and coffee cups are strewn across the ground in this fucking house of culture. I close my eyes and try to focus on my breathing. I take a deep breath. One, two, three... I open my eyes. I clench my muscles and feel my way through to the corridor, hunching over to shrink myself down and staring at the carpet as I fumble my way to the kiosk. I find Emma there in the arms of her mother, holding her violin case. I can only imagine what she's feeling to be hugged with pride by her mother or what her mother must be feeling to embrace her beautiful, talented, eternally positive daughter. She returns to her usual beaming, puts her headphones on and literally bounces as her mother hands her a massive cherry ripe. I start shaking and fall into tears. I'm not this. None of this noise, light or love. I can't believe I've been dragged here and tortured like this. I rub the tears from my face and try to scurry away. I feel my arm being pulled back. My mouth catches my heart. Hey, Emma says, her voice leaping with joy. Where you go? Are you okay? I close my eyes and force my muscles to compose themselves. It's just very loud and it really isn't your kind of scene, huh? No, I'm sorry. It's okay, she says. Did you enjoy my set?" Yeah, you're really good. I, uh I want to say more, but my brain can't cope. You just want to get back to your styles, don't you? I pause for a second. Um, I choke out. Maybe. I'm sorry. That's okay. Thank you for coming. I'm sorry. I repeat, opening my eyes and aching for the feel of her hug. I... She shakes her head. It's okay. Seriously. You go out and enjoy your stars. I'll see you at school tomorrow. I nod. She smiles and goes back to her family. I ran outside to the bus stop. I pull my school blazer over myself, collapse into the bench and explode into tears. I'm a failure, to her as a friend and to myself as a person. One nice experience and I'm reminded that I'm just an ugly, unstable, pathetic girl. I can't believe I could have ever got a hint I was anything else. I look up. The light pollution is awful. But I can still make out Venus, fighting through it all to shine at me. I manage to smile.
2: And that was Natalie Felix reading an excerpt of her writing. And Natalie's a writer, feminist, and activist who's published both fiction and nonfiction work. And these days, Natalie has a focus on bringing empowerment to queer and disabled people through advocacy and representation. And today, she joined us to talk all things trans fiction, coping with rejection, staying motivated, and what inspires her writing practice. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR, 855 AM.
0: And now we're going to go to a track by the Pigram Brothers. The Pigram Brothers uh, hold a special place in my heart, and listening to their music always reminds me of um, my childhood up in Rubibi Broom. And now we're going to listen to the track Road Train.
1: Unfolding like a flower Dewdrop in the dawn Rising like a mountain Through the foggy morn Right in this live dream Catch me if I fall Starting. Rise now my ship. shadows up the wall, and I'm rolling like a road train four dogs and thirty ton, gliding like a mountain towards the blazing sun. my friend Winding like a river To the bitter end And I'm rolling
0: We just heard Road Train by the Pigram Brothers from their album Saltwater Country. Now we're going to hear a conversation between Priya Kunjan and Wit Gori. Wit Gori provides us with updates from the Beyond Bricks and Bars Transgender Diverse Decarceration Project, which is continuing to fundraise to support vital work with trans and gender diverse people impacted by the criminal punishment system and to speak about the project's plans for 2023 and beyond. WIT is a white trans social worker who has worked alongside communities impacted by criminalisation and incarceration for the past decade. They have be, been building beyond bricks and bars over the past three years, providing direct support to trans and gender diverse people incarcerated, at risk of incarceration, and those reestablishing life after
2: prison. Witt, thanks so much for making the time to speak with me.
9: No worries, thank you.
2: Yeah, of course. I mean, it's transgender awareness week, and I think that something that folks aren't aware of enough in general really is the sort of uh institutional barriers and structural oppression that trans and gender diverse people sister girls and brother boys have to navigate within the carceral system and uh, this is where the vital work of beyond bricks and bars comes in so maybe you could give our listeners a, a very brief summary of the project and the work that you've been able to do so far
9: yeah of course um but, uh, yeah, I just first want to acknowledge that I'm on Wurundjeri country speaking with you today, um, and pay my respects to elders past and present, um, and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded and this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Um, and especially, I think, in doing this work, um, really centering that at all times, acknowledging that prisons and, and policing are, are, very fundamental elements of, of colonization and ongoing colonization and, um, particularly recognizing um, the the disproportionate amounts of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people that are in custody, um, due to the racism of that system, um, and particularly um, in terms of the work that that this project does, um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander trans and gender diverse people, sister girls and brother boys. Um, so, recapping the project, so yes, yeah, so Beyond Bricks and Bars um, is a project that uh, started in. Well, it started about four years ago um, and it happened because I um, I was working in um, one of the prisons running a completely different um, program and um, got a, a referral, came through um, to the organisation that I was working at uh, from a trans woman in a men's prison. And I had a really great manager and she was like, go see her. Um, And so I did and um, really that's when the work started because I I had that conversation with her um, and she explained to me that there was no support available to her at all or any of the trans people that were inside um, and that there was so many complex issues um, and so much um, support and advocacy was needed. Um, And then literally from word of mouth um, I, I got I received some more referrals from other trans people, and and then over the years, I've just continued doing support work um, on a voluntary basis until it got too, too big. Um, And unfortunately, there are just too many trans and gender diverse people in prison. Um, So, uh, with encouragement from my community, um, last year um, I launched a fundraiser on Crowd, uh, on Shaft, a crowdfunder, for the project um, in the hope that could get enough funding at least for a 12-month period to be able to do it, um, on a part-time paid basis rather than just trying to squeeze it in, um, as a side voluntary, um, voluntary work, which was just not, yeah, just couldn't meet the needs, um, of the people inside. So, uh, launched it and, um, was absolutely blown away by the amount of support from community, um, And we were able to raise enough funds to sustain the project. It's been over a year now um, since that fundraiser went up and we're still – completely running on um, community donations except for one grant um, that we've received so far, and that's from Transgender Victoria for $10,000. Shout out to Transgender Victoria for that because that was a huge help, particularly for brokerage, um, for um, crisis accommodation, for transport for people, for food, um, lots of that day in, day out stuff. Um, so that was a, a massive help. Um, but other than that, it's completely community donations, completely the generosity generosity of our community, um, that backs this work. Um, and since then we've been able to bring on another, um, another support worker, Max, um, who works in the project as well. Um, and since launching it, we've pretty much doubled in capacity, um, and referrals. So at the moment, I think we're like, I think we're supporting about 37 trans and gender diverse people across the state. Um, yeah, with the majority inside and then increasingly more people are getting released and we're able to support them in the community um which we're also seeing uh like really great outcomes from in terms of um like of the people that have been have been able to come out like 99% um have stayed out and haven't gone back in um which you know i think just reflects the ways in which um you know having good solid community support that's Um, that builds really, uh, you know, our work's really founded in relationships and trust um, and working with people um, on a long-term basis because you really recognise that criminalisation, incarceration doesn't happen in a vacuum and that to really support people, you have to really um, understand all the complexities in their lives and work from where they're at and what they identify as their needs are um, and that, yeah, it takes, it can take years and, um, you know, some of the people We've been supporting now for four years. I've been working with some people for four years. Um, and, you know, and also seeing the outcomes of that. Like I was you're just with, you know, a woman today and she's about to get parole and she just got, um, you know, her own place. And that was actually the first woman I met um, all those years ago. So she's about to get released. She's doing amazingly. Um, and, yeah, it's just, it's it's. It's just – it's life – it's very life-changing in when when supports can be um, really consistent. Um, and, yeah, that's our real – our aim is to really keep this project going long into the future and get as many of our community out and keep people out and prevent people going in.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the way that it's developed, even just watching it over the past year or so, uh, it seems like there's been – you know, a growth in uh, a growth in maybe uh, awareness about the need, like the level of need for support, but also um, seeing that there is so much potential for actually being able to deliver the kinds of services and affirmative support that, that people need to navigate these systems, which are, you know, fundamentally set up in an adversarial way. Like they're not trying to help folks, let alone folks who are trans and gender diverse um, in those systems. Um, so in terms of, uh, the sort of overall governance as well of the project, I know there are some plans to build a steering committee, um, of trans and gender diverse people with lived experience of incarceration. I was wondering if you could speak to that as well.
9: Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, coming into the new year, um, it's one of our, our big, um, focuses. And, um, that's also because we, you know, the, a number of the, um the trans people particularly trans women um that have been involved with the project and really guided this work like literally everything we um do in the project is is guided by the people that we support inside and responding to the needs that they identify and the ways in which they they want to be supported um and uh so so there's quite a few of um the women who have been involved in the project for a number of years now that that are actually um getting released or have been released um, who are really um, wanting to be involved in advocacy and wanting to be involved in um, in, t- in undertaking this work directly themselves. Um, and so, yeah, we're at a really um, exciting point for the project because now we can develop a steering committee um, with those people that are, are out or about to be released um so yeah the vision is to to have a number of 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 trans people with lived experience on that steering committee that will hold um the most decision making power and then also um you know having and, and be paid so every single hour that they spend involved with that they'll be paid um appropriately and then um also, obviously, volunteers that would be on the steering committee um, to help with um, strategic decision-making. So, you know, a lawyer, um, you know, a media person, um, people that have those skills that um, can guide um, how we move, um, particularly with the big strategic stuff that we've increasingly um, undertaken within the project and advocacy stuff. Um, it's it's so, so vital that um, the people trans people with the lived experience and those inside that are impacted by any strategic um, advocacy guide that because um, it's extremely high risk. And if, if we were to undertake any work without that guidance, it puts those people at risk. And so every single thing that we do in terms of advocating, we get the approval of the trans people inside that are, that are at, at risk of being impacted by that or experiencing that um, so they can let us know how they want it to be approached um, and what is safest for them? Um, because the risk of retribution within these systems is always a reality for people in multiple different ways. Um, but yeah, particularly having that steering committee, that's going to be amazing. And we, we want to make sure that people are paid properly. Um, and that, you know, that's a core, cool, a core cool part of the work is, is also, um, upskilling and providing employment opportunities for trans and gender diverse people coming out um that's a, a really core aspect of of building this project and handing it over to those people with lived experience and you know um the staff that currently involved myself and max you know we want to make ourselves obsolete in this work and step back and hand that over and let those people lead this project if they want to um because otherwise i mean i'm a strong believer and otherwise I'm just um you know if, if if as social workers or support workers or community workers that don't have lived experience of a particular issue that you're working within. If you're not trying to work yourself out of that job, then really you're just profiting off the oppression and marginalisation of other, of those communities that are impacted. Um, so you know, we're uh, yeah, we're very keen to to support people and upskill and and, it, and create those platforms for for people coming out to to undertake this work and and hand that project this project over.
2: Yeah, totally. And I think the importance of having people with lived experience of being trans and gender diverse and being incarcerated really adds a dimension that that is sort of irreplaceable in this. And, you know, not only is it important to have that sort of structure of accountability and governance, but also to have people actually working in those support work roles who have had these experiences is is such a important goal of the project. So I was hoping you could tell us a bit more about your plans to employ trans people exiting prisons to engage in this work on an ongoing basis.
9: Yeah, it's um yeah next year's going to be a big year um for the project. We're really excited to yet yeah, to be employing um, particularly a few of the trans women that are getting out that are really keen um, to undertake support work um, and take up leadership roles within the project um, and particularly recognizing that. For trans people, especially trans women, who have been criminalized, that they, they sit in the, the intersect of, of that they sit in in terms of um, the barriers that they face to employment are, are massive. And we already know that there's um, really high underemployment rates um, within the trans and gender diverse community broadly. Um, but when you add in and experiences of poverty and homelessness um, and all these massive issues that make um, yeah holding down a job really, really bloody hard, um, let alone the, the discrimination and transphobia that are in so many workplaces um, and so many places in the world broadly. Um, but then you add criminalization, you add a criminal record to that and, you know, everyone who gets out of prison, um, that ha- you know, it has that hanging over them. Um, and then, yeah, adding the experiences of transphobia and transmisogyny to that, uh, it's it's we recognize that it it's a really um difficult position and really challenging, and there's so many barriers for people to engage in in meaningful um employment that um they actually want to be doing, and particularly community based work because there's so much um bureaucracy in terms of um different like checks and that sort of thing so um for us it's really about yeah building those opportunities opening those doors and once again, supporting trans people with lived experience of these systems to lead and guide this project into the future. So, yeah, that's our big, yeah, our core two big funding drives right now is to get, get, um, increased funding, uh, so that we can also, yeah, properly pay people, ensure that people have the supports and that we're not, um, you know, I think so often with lived experience positions you see in the community sector, they are, they end up being um, tokenistic kind of roles, and um, or they're not properly supported, and people burn out really quickly and leave those roles because there's not a recognition of um, the impact of, of undertaking work where you have that lived experience. Um, so. You know, our approach to this is to really uh, be guided by the people inside about how they want to undertake that work, what kind of work, not make any assumptions about what, what they feel like they have capacity for and not selling anyone short either and making sure that, um, that it's done in a way that's really sustainable um, for those people getting out and that they're paid equally um, to any other staff member within the project um, and are upskilled, yeah, to really um, guide, guide all this work.
2: Yeah, fantastic. And finally, where can people donate to support Beyond Bricks and Bars?
9: Yeah, absolutely. So you can, um, if you just Google Beyond Bricks and Bars, um, we will probably come up or or chuffed Beyond Bricks and Bars. Um, And... um, and also, like on the so, are the projects located at Flat Out, um, which has been an incredible incredible support for for the work. And, and they're an organisation, an abolitionist organisation here in Nam, um, who've been supporting, um, in particular, women within the within the prisons and who are criminalised for the past thirty years. Um, and they've um, yeah, so we've co-located there. Um, so yeah, there's also info about Beyond Bricks and Bars on the Flat Out website. Um, which is, I think, just flat out Um But yeah, just on the chuffed, um, even just to share is amazing. But, you know, if, if everyone listening chucked in the, you know, five bucks a coffee, um, that would be a huge help. We
0: just heard from Wit Gorry, who joined Priya to go over updates from the Beyond Bricks and Bars Transgender Diverse Decarceration Project, which is continuing to fundraise to support vital work with trans and gender diverse people.
1: Yeah, I spent three and a half years living on the street and I know what it's like to have no hope and not to feel a part of the society and I think that's where a lot of these people are but I think we need to help people who are traumatised and help people get back on their feet and give them hope and help them um, feel like they're a part of the society again instead of just moving them on like they're an inconvenience.
6: If it were not for ruminations, how would the views of those of us who have been homeless or are homeless,
4: how would these views ever be aired? How would they ever be expressed?
0: Subscribe to the station that gives airtime to people with a lived
9: experience of homelessness. Support 3CR. That's all we've got
2: time for on today's Thursday Breakfast Summer Programming on 3CR Community Radio. Today's summer special featured a selection of interviews from 2022 with trans and gender diverse folks. Stay tuned to 3CR on 855 AM, 3CR Digital and streaming at 3cr.org.au or via the Community Radio app.
0: You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia.